If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and grab it uh, and turn with me to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Uh, There should be a green one around you somewhere. You can just grab that one. Or if you're really bold, it's a holiday weekend, you know, you might be feeling it a little bit. Just slide over to the person next to you and and share with them. It's okay. Uh, They're probably a nice person. Uh, just, Just go for it. All right. So as we as we jump in here this morning, I just want to set the context for us just a little bit, um, because, because last week we saw Jesus make his way up to Jerusalem for, for the Feast of Booths. He made his way into the temple there, and he began, to, he began to teach, right? We don't know exactly what he was saying there. We don't have a record of that, but we do know that he was expounding on the Scriptures, uh, and, and that the people there, the, the people in Jerusalem, they were stunned by, by both his knowledge of the Scriptures and his ability to interact with them. And they were really caught off guard because to them, he was an outsider. All right, He didn't fit into their, their sort of paradigm, and, and they were judging the book by the cover. And, and, and we finished with Jesus telling them, he said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see, Jesus wants to be known. He, he wants to be understood. He wants to be embraced, not as an outsider, not as even a, a clever teacher, but as the living Word of God. And again, we said it last week that, that the Word didn't take on flesh. It didn't take on flesh and come to hide among us, but He came to dwell among us. He came to live among us or, or tabernacle among us to set up camp here with us. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me now? And we're going to direct our gaze to this living word this morning. This is John chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me? And you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
as we've already confessed this morning, we, we need you. As we just sang that together, God, we, we need you, not just in these moments. We, we need you every, every hour, every moment. But we especially need you here now. We need you to speak to us through your word. We need you to teach us. We need you to shout to us so that our deaf ears might hear you. We need you to shine and show yourself in such a way that our blind eyes might perceive you. And God, we need you to awaken our souls this morning that we might know you. That we might know you. Lord, I pray that you would do that work. I pray that, pray that you would work in spite of me. Um, that you would work in above all of the distractions of life, all of the thoughts that might be creeping into our minds, even as we sit here, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would melt those things away and allow us to just be present with you here. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not much of a traveler. Um, I, I'm not proud of that fact. That's not like a point of pride for me, I, 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 but we're just not. Now, we go to the beach pretty much every year, and like eventually we'll probably go up to the mountains. It's probably about that time to go like pick apples in Hendersonville or something. Uh, but, but I mean, like once you've been to Edisto, like you, that, you've seen Edisto, right? I mean, it's not like an adventure at that point. Once you've been to the apple farm, I mean, other than you know, picking a different flavor of apple. It's not like an adventure. It's not like traveling. It's not going out into, the, into God's creation and kind of exploring. And so while we do some trips every once in a while, our, our family in general is not, not, not we're not big travelers. Um, and so what that means is that most of our travel has been on, on service trips or, or like mission trips, mission journeys. We, for eight straight years, we, we made the trip um, uh, out of the comfort of the deep south and we took uh, teams of college students and young adults up into uh, New York City to work with a, a multi-ethnic, a multicultural uh, church plan in what is the most diverse neighborhood on planet Earth. We, we went up there with our, with our college kids. Uh, it's called Grace Fellowship Church. We took those college kids, young adults, even a few... Uh, few high school students every once in a while, and we, we ran a day camp for them up in, uh, up in this largely immigrant community there. It, it was awesome. We worked hard all day, and we spent the evenings uh, kind of exploring the city. And, and what we came to realize very quickly uh, is that every city, and if you're from a big city or have lived there, you, you probably uh, already knew this. Columbia isn't really like this. Uh, Columbia doesn't have that sort of identity other than just like we, it's really hot here. That's, that's, that's even like the city slogan for Columbia. It's hot. Uh, how lame is that? Anyway, um, that's, that's literally all we bring to the table, humidity and heat. That's our, that's our only game at this point. So anyway, uh, we, we went up there, and, and, but any big city with any sort of identity has sort of a cultural um, element to it. it it's, it's sort of a, this is who we are, and this is the way that we do it. And, and we unapologetically are that way, and you will fit into that system, or you won't survive here. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we learned up in, up in New York. They made it very clear to us that that is how things operate. Although I would tell you some of the nicest people we've ever met are right up there in, in New York City who, who looked out for us when the 7 train back into Queens just stopped working uh, for like two days. And a very nice actress that we met in the subway helped us get back to where we were supposed to be. But every major city 
has this sort of this sort of cultural identity that exists. In this passage, John introduces us to another group of people. He's done this throughout uh, his gospel. It, it's, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he continues to refer to different groups like the Jews or the disciples. We even saw the 12, you know, just sort of broken down in a smaller group. Each of those groups represented some portion of humanity and varying levels of proximity to Jesus. Every, every one of those groups is used intentionally to describe their relationship with Jesus. And he, he does this to demonstrate the, the great variety of perspectives that different people groups have, uh, even the people who are around him, that they have of, of Jesus. And in this passage, we meet yet another group, simply referred to there in verse 25 as some of the people of Jerusalem. Some of the people of Jerusalem. These are the locals. All right, they live there. They work there. They know how the system works. They, they know who the real decision makers are. Like they know if you want to get something done, this is who you go and talk to. They know the ins and the outs of temple <laughs> politics within the city. And, and much more than the other pilgrims who are there for the feast, much more than the, maybe the Galileans who have made the journey up to Jerusalem, these are holy city people, okay? They're like the... They're like residents of Charleston, okay? They already know where to park. They, they don't have to, they don't deal with that. They know which streets are one way and which ones to avoid. They, they already know all that. They know the good restaurants. And, and what we see from them is they also have an eye for recognizing hypocrisy. They can spot it, partly because they aren't as distracted by the spectacle of all that's happening in the moment. We see it right there in 25 where they asked, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities know that this is the Christ? They're going, man, I think this is the guy. Like, I think this is the one we've been hearing about. And, and here he is. They, you almost get the sense that they're kind, of, they're kind of watching from the outside, like sort of on the margins of the crowd, watching this whole thing happen. They're, not, they're local, so they're not going to get all up in the mess. They're going to stand in the back and kind of see how everything develops, see how it shakes out, and then maybe will engage. That's the people of Jerusalem. They're, they're naturally skeptical. You see, they're used to people coming to their town to try and make a name for themselves. Jerusalem's where you go if you want to get a following. If you, it, Jerusalem is where you go in Judea if you want to be somebody. It's really the only option. But something's different about this one. And they can see it, man. They're not... He's not out there operating in the dark. He's not, he's not hiding in the shadows. This guy, this, this Jesus, he isn't hiding from the authorities. Like, he's here. He's here and present. He, he's not just there, like, out in the open. He's there in the temple. Like, you, you think about that. The, the people who are trying to kill him, who are actively seeking to destroy him, he's now gone into their building and begun to openly teach in their midst, teaching the word of God. And so we see these two contrasting and really opposing uh, realities coming together here. We see Jesus working in the light, working in the openness, working in the day where he can be seen. And we see the Sanhedrin or the Jews operating in the shadows. This is a theme that John uses throughout his gospel to compare and contrast Jesus with what we might what we might today just term religion, just 
religion. You see, he set the table for us right in the beginning in John 1, 5, when he said that the light, and we said that was Jesus, that the light shines in the darkness. You remember that. If you've been with us through the gospel of John, you remember that. We've seen this light theme kind of kind of be tracking through each chapter, each section. And so the presupposition that John is making, right, the base level assumption that John, the, the evangelist, is making here is that the default status of the world is darkness. That's the starting point. And what he said back in chapter 3 and verse 19 is that, is that, people, is that people love the darkness. Like they cared for the darkness, they had affection for the darkness. We, we sang uh, the psalm earlier and we said God is our chosen portion. They, they loved the darkness. The darkness was their, their cup. It was their chosen portion. It's what they desired. It was their blanket of comfort. And it's into that reality that Jesus has, has entered, right? And you see what happens when light enters the room. Every, every child knows this, right? That when, that when light enters into the darkness, it exposes it for what it really is. Like for the child, there's either a monster to fear or there is not when the lights are cut on. And we see it in two ways in this passage. The first is here in the first few verses. It's that the darkness of hypocrisy is exposed by the truth of the light. The hypocrisy of the Jews is being exposed and the people see it. They see it. They even ask there in 26, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're seeing it in such a way that they're, they're asking, can, can, can it be that they actually know that this is the man? But then we also see that tradition gets in the way. Look at 27. They say, but, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me? And you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus proclaimed this. Literally, he cried out. There's this sense that in that moment, he said, enough. Enough. Whatever this muttering is in the background, whatever this talk is in the background, he is proclaiming at this point. He is shouting, you know me? I know you don't see a question mark in there and in your translation, but, but there probably should be one. Many scholars will point out that this is, a, this is a rebuke. Because just because you see something, and just because you can observe something, it doesn't mean that you, that you know that thing. You see, I can see the sun I can even comprehend some of the properties of the sun, right? If, if you were, I know because some of you show it on your face, you were at the game yesterday, right? And you sat on the surface of the sun to watch a football game. That's what happens in South Carolina in September. And so if you were on the east side, we can tell, all right? And it's okay. It's okay. We know because you, you, you radiate a little bit of that uh, first game of the season glow, right? And so we, we know that you were there. And if you were up in the upstate, you just had less humidity. That was it. That was the only difference for our brothers and sisters up in Clemson, right? Just wasn't quite as bad. We have to play in tougher conditions down here just to make that known. Uh, if you're taking notes, write that one down. No, no, no. The, but, but right, that we know something about it. We know that it, it creates light. That, that by C.S. Lewis famously said, I don't believe in the sun because I see it. I believe in the sun because by it I see everything else, right? We know that the sun illuminates the world for us. We also know that it creates some warmth 
for us, sometimes more, more than we like. But it doesn't mean that I understand it. I don't, I don't understand the sun. I don't know it. At this point, all these people have had is, is an experience with Jesus. They had, some, they had some basic messianic assumptions because these were Jewish people. They'd been raised knowing the Torah, right? And they had their religious tradition, but they didn't know Jesus. The truth is that these people were actually, they're actually quite ignorant. They, they were like me when I stand and look at the stars at night. I don't know if you're a parent, when a child asks you, what is that in the night sky? There's never a more intimidating question to try and answer. Because I don't know if it's a star or a planet. I've, I've, I don't, is that Jupiter? Maybe. I don't know. And then when they're going through the solar system in their class, they for like an hour and a half know exactly what those things are. And they're like, no, that's Mars. That's Jupiter. That one's Saturn. And next month, next month, we'll be able to see some other planet. And I'm just pointing at them, hoping they're not planes, right? He's going, man, I really hope that's a natural phenomenon and not somebody from American Airlines messing with us. That's, this is what it... This is how the Jews are. They see Jesus, and they think because they see him that they know him. That they know him. But they don't. And see, the face of the exposed hypocrisy of the leaders in Jerusalem is that we, what exposes them is we see the declared authenticity of Jesus of the Son of Man. Jesus doesn't want people to be confused about him. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of who he is. That is not his desire. And so he pushes back on them a little bit here. In fact, he pushes pretty hard. And in doing so, he doesn't appeal to his earthly past. Like you don't see Jesus going, yeah, I'm from Nazareth. He doesn't even point back to Bethlehem. He doesn't do that. He doesn't appeal to his earthly upbringing because he knows that that's not primarily what they need to know about him. He points directly toward he who sent me. And there's a reason for that. It's because the mission of Jesus and the person of Jesus can never be separated. You can't have one without the other. They can't be divided. And so you see, he doesn't point to the earth. He actually points to heaven. And we need to remember that this passage is a continuation of an event that we started, that we started last week. He's still there. He's still in the temple. It's still that same teaching times. And so this is sort of like when I was a child and we had to watch movies on VHS tapes. I realize that for some of you, that's not a reality that you are familiar with um, because now you just stream it or whatever. But when I was a kid, if you watched a long movie, it would be, it would be the double tape one. And so like, you, you'd watch, like if you watched The Sound of Music, you'd get to a certain part and it was intermission like in your house, and you had to get up, everybody went to the bathroom, and you come back and put in the next tape and pray that whoever had had it before you had rewound it, otherwise your intermission just got longer and more obnoxious. And so that's, that's what this past week has been. It's been an intermission for us. This past week, we, we saw the first half of this time, and now we're seeing the next part of it. And so the intermission is over here, but it's the same movie, because you see back in verse 18, if you look back at 18, where we were last week, Jesus said, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. It's that word for true that's a connecting point for us. It's the same word that we see here in verse 28, and that's not just a coincidence. You see, D.A. Carson says, Jesus' point is not that God exists, but that God, as the one who sent him, is real. 
He really is the one who sent Jesus. And Jesus says, him, that one who sent me, him, you do not know. Now, this is a strike against their pride. And a hard one, man. This is a big strike. Their their pride was rooted in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Uh, It was rooted in the fact that God gave them the law. Remember what Jesus said in 546. He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. He's just continuing to pull back the curtain a little more with each step here. He said, you think you're spiritual because you have the law, but, but you don't understand the law. Because if you understood the law, you would know that it's that the law is pointing to me. Just like how the light shined into the darkness of their hypocrisy, here what we see is that in his claim of authenticity, he's shining a light into the darkness of their fraudulent faith. And it's the same for us today. For them, salvation was about ethnic identity. It was about being part of the right family. It was about where they were from. It was about their heritage, right? Jesus at least in their minds, was an outsider. He was an invader. And when, when Laurie and I first uh, got married in, our, in the first home that we lived in, uh, we were asleep one night, and uh, both of us were awakened by this just crazy chirping sound. Um, it's like really hard to even describe. It sounded like a fire alarm or something going off in our house, but we knew we didn't have like an actual fire alarms, and it was louder than the battery beep, you know, that the smoke detectors made. It was just this pervasive and super obnoxious noise, and I'm a real deep sleeper, so to wake me up, it, it was loud, and it was terrible, honestly. Uh, it sounded like, like, like something really, really bad is going on. You know how that is when you wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, you're not all there. Like, like you're just kind of trying to sort out the reality in which you find yourself, you know? And so we're trying to figure this all out, trying to get our bearings. All, all, all the while, uh, you know, this unusual thing is happening in the background. We, we pretty quickly figured out that the sound was coming from inside the walls of our house. Uh, and so I, I was, as an electrician, I did all that I knew what to do. I went and took the plate off of one of the receptacles on the wall, thinking, you know, this will give me access to the wall. And out jumped this cricket out, out of the wall, um, jumped out of the wall, landed on my arm, jumped on the carpet, and tried to escape. And, and uh, in my mind, it was the biggest cricket to ever walk the face of the earth. And, and you cannot convince me otherwise, okay? This thing was a monster. We, we, I mean, like, we literally made eye contact when it jumped onto me. Uh, as it turned out, our, our walls were just full of crickets. All the crickets were in our... If you wanted to know where they were, that's where they were, uh, and, and, but just because we found them, just because we knew we were there, didn't mean that we knew where they came from. You see, that was a whole different question that would take a, would take a lot more effort to figure out. That's how the Pharisees and the other religious leaders felt about Jesus. He was the cricket in the wall. He was the thing that showed up and doesn't belong there. He wasn't what they wanted. He wasn't what they expected. He did not mesh with their political agendas. Jesus created all kinds of issues because he was too too conservative for the liberals and he was too liberal for the conservatives. Jesus was just not okay in, in their mind. He didn't fit into the box that they had constructed for which the Messiah was meant to live in. But as it was, he had infiltrated, right? He had gotten into the box. He had... 
He had infiltrated their fortress that they had built. And he was threatening their system. He was disrupting their routines. And he was shining light into the darkness of their controlled comfort. You see, that's what Jesus does. And he still does it today. Because so many people are walking through life with false expectations of what life is actually meant to be. And so we, uh, just like those people of Jerusalem, man, we like our kingdoms the way that we've built them. I mean, we do. We like our comforts the way that we've organized them. We like our priorities, and we hold on to them with, oftentimes with just clenched fists, even when those things are absolutely wiping us out. Even when our constant efforts to prove ourselves to the world are leaving us tired and hungry, we still fight for them with every ounce of our being. For most of us, I just want to be honest, like I don't tend to worry that your great rebellion against the Lord is, is like I don't worry about getting the phone call about one of you starting a cult or even joining one for that matter. Like, I don't. I, I, that's not what wakes me up in the middle of the night. That's, that's not what provokes me in the night. That I, don't, I don't wake up and worry that, that one of you is going to be in the news because you've started selling heroin to all the local school kids. Like, I've never in my life worried that I was going to get that call about any of you. I've never worried that we were going to get the call that you've joined a terrorist cell or something. Like, that's, I just don't worry about that with you. I hope that's a, a compliment in like the worst possible way. Um, but I don't. I don't worry that, you're, I'm gonna get, that I'm gonna hear of one of our church members being involved in human trafficking. I really don't. I don't think that's your future. And so I don't tend to worry about it. But what tends to wake me up in the middle of the night, what does tend to cause me to worry, is not so much that we would be a people of public, like illicit public rebellion, and sort of that front page news type of stuff. But that we're going to be a people who are so comfortable with our lives, who are so pleased with the kingdom that we have built, a people so set in our ways, and a people who are in so love with our comforts that our great rebellion against God, our great rebellion against the light, is going to be our infatuation with fitting in with the culture. And that will spill over into, at best, flirting with the darkness, and at worst, just a flat-out, full-on affair. It's that we're going to be a lot like the people of Jerusalem. It's that we're going to allow our culture to dictate how we live rather than the Word of God. Listen, listen, these people should have known who He was. Like, they had the Bible, at least the Old Testament, They had the law and the prophets. They should have known what Isaiah had said about the coming Messiah. They should have known when when Isaiah 35 says that when the Savior comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. They should have known that. They should have expected that. And then if they even had the ability to see, they would have been witnesses to it. They should have known Isaiah 42 where we, where we read that the Lord's chosen servant wouldn't be a political conqueror. That he wouldn't come with that as a priority. 
We're told there in Isaiah 42 that, that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And listen, we could go on and on with this all day. We could go through Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy and point out how they, how they point to Jesus unmistakably, undeniably. We could do that. And we know that they would have been witnesses to that. It didn't do them any good, so I'm not going to do it today either, because they missed it. As a people of pride and privilege, they missed it because they had false expectations of what Jesus was supposed to be. They had, they had misguided notions of what, of what the Messiah would, would even do when he got here. And so do we. So do we. That's how we justify the recurring sins in our lives. That's how we end up ignoring what God tells us. That's how the church ends up looking more like the culture than it looks like Christ. That's, if you want to know what wakes me up, that's what wakes me up in the middle of the night. That's what, you're, that's what other pastors who you've met, that's the type of stuff we cry about, like when we get together, is that we're going to look just like the world. That's what causes me to pray with tears. It's that instead of looking to, as the author of Hebrews calls it, the great cloud of witnesses, right? That's the people who've gone before us in Christ and the ones who are here present with us in Christ. Instead of looking at the great cloud of witnesses, instead of throwing aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, instead of looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, instead of doing that, we actually look to the world. We're letting culture, we're letting tradition, we're letting our personal preference just dictate our ethics. We're ignoring what God tells us for the sake of convenience. To us, Jesus says at the end of our passage this morning, that time is short. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. And then he says, and I want you to hear this, like if you've tuned me out at this point, just check back in for just half a, half a minute. He says this, You will seek me, and you will not find me. He says, Where I am, you cannot come. A, f- a few months back, uh, I had a conversation with just an incredibly nice lady. She's not here, so you don't have to worry. I'm not, you're not the example in this. Um, she came up to me in a very public setting. Like and wanted to have one of those conversations. Like we had, we'd been in social circles a little bit, and so I don't like wear a name tag that says I'm a pastor. Um, I find that to be a pretty ineffective ministry strategy. Um, and I've yet to go to like the clergy collar, but it's tempting. And um, and so, but but she knew what I do, and and she was from the area, and and I think had been to a wedding or something, and so. This relationship built slowly over the course of of, the, of a particular season, and so we're at this uh, particular moment in time, and it was it was like a celebration, and everybody's excited, and she chooses that moment. This often happens to uh, pour out her soul um, right there beside a basketball court, and uh, and so we're uh, it's one of those like okay, we're doing this, you know, like this is this is happening now. You've chosen this time. Um, Super nice lady. I mean, that's, that's how I would describe her. She said to me, and you could tell she'd been wanting to say this. She said, uh, you know, we haven't been to church in a long time. 
long, long time. Uh, I mean, I'm a Christian, but we just haven't really been living a Christian life. I mean, I know I'm a Christian, but we haven't been living a Christian life. But, but, I, but I know I'm good. You don't have to worry about me. I'm good. We had like an hour and a half drive from that event to uh, where we were to get back home. And I mean, my heart just broke, right? I mean, in that moment, if you know me, I'm like an emotional person. Anyway, I'm like, my whole family could tell. They're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, ah, nothing. I'm not trying to put that on y'all right now. But listen, everyone doesn't have to come to this church, obviously. Um, there are many, many good churches. And if you visit here and don't like it, please just ask me, and I'll give you a list of a lot of really good ones. Um, I would... I, I, I would love to help connect you to another good one if this isn't home for you. But living the Christian life, that's not an option for a true Christian. Like walking with Christ is essential to what it means to be a Christian. Because the person of Christ and the message of Christ cannot be separated. And so I guess I would just ask you, like, where does the light need to shine in your life today? Where's that gap right now that you're still holding on to? What comfort or pleasure are you holding on to right now that God is calling you to let go of? What convenience in your life right now is God saying, it may be convenient, but it's not for you? What might that be? And, and, and listen, it could be different for every soul in this room. What are you holding on to? What pain, what pain or sorrow from your past are you still clinging on to that God has said, man, I've already paid for that. I've already covered that. I've already set you free from that. I hope I, hope I never become, either as a parent, a pastor, a husband, any, I hope I never become like a walking bag of cliches, you know? Um, that's just, that's a, I don't want to be that. So I just want to close today. Um, this will be a little different by just praying together. And so what's going to happen now, I'm going to pray through Hebrews 12, just verses 1 and 2. We're going to pray together. I'm going to read that. And then we're just going to, and we're just going to ask God to make that uh, our heart's desire. Let's pray together. Therefore, uh, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, would you make this true in our lives? God, would you by your Spirit help us to look to you, look to our brothers and sisters who are around us, help us to trust in you. Help us to cling to you instead of to our sin. Help us to run to you with endurance the race that is set before us. Help us to look to Jesus today. Help us to do that tomorrow. Like I know tomorrow's a holiday and it's one of the best holidays because there's no expectations for Labor Day. It's just don't do anything. I pray that tomorrow the one thing that we would be fully committed to doing is looking to you.
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross so that we wouldn't have to, who paid the penalty that we deserve, a penalty that we couldn't, and we can't even bear to comprehend. I pray that we would walk as your children, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.